everyone, and welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect our favorite music, heavy metal. So sit back, relax, pop open a cold one, and let the debate begin. Welcome back, everyone, to Debating Metal. I'm Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and each week, along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect the hard rock and heavy metal bands that we all know and love. Each week, we also discuss some bands and albums you may not know that you should definitely be listening to, as well as giving you our big four on various bands, albums, musicians, etc. All right, so this week on episode 16, we're going to be discussing Metal in the New Millennium. We'll be talking about legacy bands and how they had to adapt, as well as the new bands that emerged in the new millennium. And later in the episode, you wanted the best, you got the best. But this week's Big Four. This week, we're picking our Big Four, Metal, Mount Rushmore. And along with the new What Should You Be Listening To, we're introducing a new segment called Head to Head. But before we begin, let's recap what we discussed last week on episode 15. We spoke about our love and affinity for Iron Maiden and spoke about some of our personal experiences in our fandom of the band. So if you missed last week's episode or any of your previous ones, be sure to stream or download all our episodes on your favorite podcast platforms like Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, and iHeartRadio. And please don't forget to rate us or leave us a review. Chris, what was our big four last week? Last week we picked our big four moments in Iron Maiden history. To check out our list, find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or let us know if you liked our picks or you think you can do better. Let's start things off with what should you be listening to? Why don't you start us off, Kenneth? All right. So this week, um, again, I get, I'm get i slightly prepared. <laughs> <laughs> um, this week's what should you be listening to, I got the idea from Josh and Nesbitt from Talking Maiden. They have been listening to a particular band, and I finally gave them a spin, and definitely really, really cool band. Uh, I'm talking about a band called Night Demon. They just released a single called Empire's Fall, and the song is about the fall of the record industry, basically. And this band, Night Demon, they're one of these bands that started in the 2010s, and they are basically a traditional heavy metal band. They have influences from all over the place. And I know that Jarvis Leatherby, who is the bass player and singer, he is a big Iron Maiden fan, and that's how he got involved with Talking Maiden. And he, uh, he, there's some, you know, in his songwriting, there's some elements of all sorts of different heavy metal. And I think uh, this single has a little bit of a, like a, a speed, not speed metal, a little bit of a power metal vibe to it, but... The, another song I heard is just like straight up traditional, almost like Armored Saintish, you know, that kind of traditional early 80s basic metal. But it, it's really cool. So I, I really, really enjoyed listening to it today. Empire's Fall is a really cool track. I, uh, I really believe that you guys should be listening to it. Check it out when you can. All right, cool. I've never heard of them, but uh, I'll definitely check them out now. Yeah, they're a band out of California. Okay. All right, so for my What Should You Be Listening To, I picked uh, Creator's new single, uh, 666 World Divided. This came out this year. It was tied to a, a nuclear blast combo EP with Lamb of God. So th- it was only one track, but a couple different versions. And 
it's a really cool song and it bodes really well for the next album to come out uh i'm not sure if it's gonna be specifically on that album or if maybe it was just a promo release because they did also release a, a live album called london uh, apocalypticon that's live at the roundhouse i'm not really sure what they're i know they're recording a new album i i'm not really sure like i said if this is if this is part of that new album or if this is just a teaser but i'm on board so am i <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can i can i can definitely get into it all right all right so what we're going to do now is we're going to introduce a new segment called the head-to-head and what we're going to do with that is we're going to pick a subject that we disagree on, which a lot of times you'll hear like in our big four, we, we agree on a lot of things. We come out with um, a lot of the same people, maybe not in the same exact order, but we do. But there are certain things we definitely disagree on. So we're going to pick a subject. And today's subject is going to be Sammy Hagar versus David Lee Roth. And that's going to really just cover the, the Van Halen era. So... I'm picking uh, Sammy on this one. And I'm picking Dave. So, <laughs> what we're going to do is put two minutes on the clock, and we're going to uh, pick a side and let each other have it. There you go. All right, so let's put two minutes on the clock. All right, so I'm going to start off with saying that Van Halen uh, did not have a number one album until 5150 came out that doesn't matter they had six platinum albums right before you know david lee roth decided to get fired from the band well every album with uh with sammy was platinum as well yeah well the the original party band was with dave and they 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 never had the same sound they never had the same uh enthusiasm on stage as they as they did when they had dave I mean, so. I disagree with that. I, if you've watched Live Without a Net, I mean, there was a ton of enthusiasm. And the thing is that Sammy could sing anything that Dave could sing, and, but it wasn't the same, not vice versa. Well, it's not like Dave ever had a chance to sing Sammy stuff until recently if if he wanted to. And by now, his voice is shot anyway. Yeah, and he doesn't want to. <laughs> that that too. But my, my thing was that David Lee Roth established Van Halen. Okay, And you can see by his solo album that... You know, he played a lot of songs that were very similar sounding to Van Halen. So he, he had a lot to do with the original su- success with Van Halen, the first six albums. No, he, he definitely did. It just as far as, as the, the future of Van Halen, the ability to adapt, the ability to grow in the direction that Eddie wanted to take the band. I mean, that wasn't going to happen with Dave, and it, things needed to change. They picked a guy with, with Sammy Hagar that had amazing singing ability. They put out two two great live albums. Like I said, four number one albums. I find that hard to beat. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, 80s, uh, the 80s were definitely a different time period, and I think that, that Dave would have served a lot of those songs differently, but I think it would have been a lot different vibe. Uh, I think it would have been a little bit more upbeat because I think a lot of the stuff that d- they did with Sammy was more ballady, a lot less uh, up-tempo stuff. You know, when I say up-tempo, we're talking about stuff like, you know... Um, that's two minutes. <sighs> <laughs> so one thing that's really cool about this is that we're going we're gonna to probably bring this up as another subject, but as the full show later on. If you like this, we definitely want to know. So, no resolution here. I'm right, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, you know, Eddie did want Dave back several times. <laughs> <laughs> well, stay tuned because we're going to talk about this more in depth later on. Very good. Okay, so this week's topic is metal in the new millennium. With that said, it, it's it's music every year something changes in music and obviously every decade something new happens when the 80s came in things changed I mean, you know disco died new wave was bubbling under and the new wave of british heavy metal was was about ready to explode when the 90s came in we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago there was a lot of upheaval in the bands the membership of bands you know a lot of lineup changes and a lot of people trying to adapt to grunge music as that was being introduced. That was bubbling over, thanks to Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. Now, in the new millennium, something that began in the middle 90s was really starting to take hold in the late 90s and into the new millennium, and that was new metal. And that changed the way a lot of people uh, or a lot of musicians you know, did their songwriting. Oh yeah, for sure. You saw a lot of old bands still maintaining, still kind of doing what they were doing or maybe experimenting and growing. But a lot of, a lot of what I saw was the older bands kind of returning to form for what they were before, you know, maybe they made some changes in the nineties and then they were kind of coming back to their status quo per se. And then you saw a lot of older bands maybe changing into something new. And then you saw the the evolution of a lot of new products like Slipknot. So you saw, right. saw you know, Slipknot coming along. You saw, you know, Limp Bizkit, a lot of rap metal that was coming out of what, what Rage Against the Machine started. Well, Rage Against the Machine started... A while before that and, and they were one of those bands that i was I really adopted early on because i loved their style uh it was just four guys playing f- you know four instruments vocals bass drums and guitar and they didn't do anything extra there was nothing else on there was no keyboards there was nothing else and and all the sounds were made by those four guys yeah um well that's that's what i mean they, they had started that whole rap metal i mean they're, right. they're, it's it's arguable obviously the 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 the, uh, the combo with anthrax and uh, public enemy you know that's kind of started but but the the biggest band to take that concept and really you know grow with it was rage against oh right yeah i mean anthrax did it but anthrax that was that was a one-off basically mm-hmm. or two off if you want to include on the man but yeah that's they they basically spawned the seed that other musicians said hey this this is not a bad idea you know yeah it's like what we talk about with with the first black sabbath album you know it's it's the it's what starts it but it's not necessarily in that that particular genre correct exactly since we're talking about rage against machine you know they started in the mid 90s they they started what you can say that that crossover rap metal stuff you know stuck mojo was another band that that took that to the next level they were more, I would almost say they were more traditional metal with, with a singer who rapped, um, mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to Rage Against the Machine, which uh, adapted their musical style to a hip-hop singer or hip-hop vocalist, if you want to call it that. 
Because, yeah. you know, Zach De La Rocha, I mean, he was definitely more hip-hop. But the music itself is, I mean, any of the of, of rap music you can play live with a, with a real band, but they choose not to because it's mostly just, you know, bass beats and stuff like that and, and samples. But Rage Against the Machine proved that you can play, you know, with a band doing that kind of hip-hop stylings. Yeah. Well, that being said, I mean, this was kind of the end of, of Rage Against the Machine, the new millennium. They they put out their last album to that date, mm-hmm. which was uh, Renegades. Right. And they didn't even tour to support it because they had broken up months before the album came out. Yeah, it, it was it was disappointing because, you know, they did have, you know, they went into the new millennium with a really big hit of an album with um, the Battle of Los Angeles. But it all fell apart shortly thereafter. I think a lot of it also had to do with um, politics. I mean, they're a big political band. Yeah. And, you know, with with um, an election year being that year, there was a lot... They had a lot of other things that they were concentrating on. And, and they obviously, you know, did what they had to do. And they, they did their protests. And, and I mean, the, the, the live record for the Battle of Los Angeles live at the I forgot what the LA Coliseum or something like that. But that that was a really cool show, that video, and that was basically a, a protest show that they had put together. Um so so they spent, you know, the better part of two thousand basically protesting the elections and, you know, doing their political stuff. So yeah, they they basically fizzled going into the new millennium and that's one of those things that happens when when these big years again you know decades change and this one happened and that wasn't just a decade change this was a a, a millennium change a thousand years had passed you know so it yeah. was quite a, a big year i mean there was a lot of fear in general the y2 you know, y2 yeah y2 the y2k K, yeah. i was gonna say y2j <laughs> <laughs> you know the y2k fear was freaking everybody out but that's one of those things where you know i, th- I you start thinking about it and it's like okay wait the the other side of the world kind of happens first if you want to look at it that way if if something would have happened we would have known about it you know however many hours earlier so it would have actually happened to us before the new millennium started <laughs> if something would have been that bad you know so yeah we would well. We would have known it was coming, right? You know? Whatever, whatever. It, <laughs> we would have had the countdown going, right? Whatever it so, may have so been. Oblivion. Yeah. <laughs> if we would have been into oblivion at about eight o'clock. <laughs> yeah. The world ended over there a few hours ago, but we're uh, we're still okay for another few hours. <laughs> <laughs> that that whole so along with raging as machine, a, a big factor that influenced a lot of what ended up happening into the millennium was corn now i don't want to spend a lot of time on corn because they they started in 1992 or or 94 one of those years early 90s going into mid 90s so they weren't a factor of of the bands in the new millennium but much like black sabbath when they when black sabbath created that the heavy music that they played that turned into heavy metal they created a type of music that ended up being called new metal, which was a mixture of some rapping, some speaking, some singing, very tuned down guitars, all the way down to C, in some cases B, just just this very gothy, doomy, poor me, I'm in a bad mood type of music that just was so prevalent going into the, into the new millennium. 
I yeah, I, don't, I can't think of a better way to express the the content is poor me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and along with them, and I don't want to I don't want to stray too far from Rage because I wanted to bring up Audio Slave. Mm-hmm. And Audio Audio Slave came out of the the ashes of Rage with Chris Cornell, and which yeah, is out of the ashes album, of Soundgarden. Yeah, the first album was was uh, kind of not what they would later become. But, uh, I mean, I would say it was an adjustment period for both of them. But following that, they, they built something pretty great. Yeah, I mean, it, it's unfortunate that they only put out three albums. But that first album stands the test of time. Um, I mean, I, I, could, I could still listen to it today. It came out, I think it was 2004 or something like that. or two, Maybe it was 2003, I can't remember. But it, it was such a, um, I mean, you talk about a perfect mesh and then getting the sound that is a, that is a perfect mesh of those two bands, you know, you have a vocalist from Soundgarden. I mean, he's one of the premier hard rock heavy metal vocalists of his time, and you put together with a band that is so tight with with uh, you know Rage Against the Machine, those three instrumentalists, and then you, when you when you play when you put them together, they literally sound like a combination of Soundgarden and Rage Against the Machine. And that's yeah. that is, to me, that first album was just amazing to listen to. But when Kochi's hit, and those first chords, I was like, "Is this Soundgarden or is this Rage Against the Machine?" Because musically, without even hearing Chris talk, or excuse me, without hearing Chris speak, forget it, without hearing Chris sing, <laughs> um, <laughs> it 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 was like. Is this Soundgarden or is this Rage Against the Machine? Because they were literally balancing that line between both bands, even yeah. though the band itself was not Soundgarden; it was Rage Against the Machine. That I found amazing, and I love that album. That first album is incredible; one of my favorite albums. Oh, okay. Um, but I mean, it's not a it's not a pure metal album at by any means. But I, no, you know. But- I, yeah, it's definitely got the elements there, and yeah. Tom Morello can tread. You know, I, I make no qualms about the fact that I, I like some grunge. I like alternative metal. I like rock. I like what happened, you know, Little Richard passing away last this past week. You know, I, we posted a little dedication to him because I am a huge fan of 50s doo-wop rock and roll. So, yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, and so, you know, especially when I... When I uh, started working for the record store i really opened up my mind about a lot of different musics that were out there i don't have a a dislike of any one particular style of music but there's obviously there's my favorite which is you know heavy metal and all things encompassing but there are elements of of jazz there's elements of new world or yeah new world is a new world no world music there's there's elements of, of jazz elements of world music new age is what i was thinking of the um, new world music was hulk hogan's theme <laughs> <laughs> you know world music new age jazz country all that stuff you can find elements of all that in metal which is weird like like not many other categories of music can you find everybody else's music in it's very, I mean, think about Soulfly plays, you know, a, a, a very tribal type of music in the early Soulfly days. So that's, you know, that would be a touch of world music. And you, obviously you can hear some touches of jazz all the time in metal. 
Oh yeah. I mean, so, some of my favorite bands have a lot of jazzy elements. I mean, right. I've talked about death how many times? And oh yeah. I mean, death. I mean, just tremendous amount of jazzy elements. Um, and a lot of those bands that came from that time, uh, I mean, l- luckily continued bringing that element into the music. But yeah, you're 100 percent right. They, they, the thing about metal is, it, is it does take a lot of the best elements from a lot of different genres of music and compiles it to make something really great exactly that was what was so cool about audio slave to be able to combine those two bands the way they did again they were a creation of the dissolving of two other major bands at the time and it's unfortunate in two cases but it was very fortunate in one other case yeah sometimes it takes stepping away from what you know and what becomes complacency and, you know, going in a different direction and finding your feet that way. And a lot of times what ends up happening is you find something even better than what you had before or just something that you needed to create at that time. Exactly. So going back to, to Rage Against Mission, like you mentioned, they, since they, they were one of the, the originators, if you want to put it that way, or one of the early adopters of, of rap metal, they spawned other bands such as Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park. And Limp Biscuit being more hip hoppy with the metal elements behind it, Linkin Park being more hip hoppy with uh more dancey metal elements to it. You know, there's certain things about them that can that they're really hard, but a lot of it is, you know, they're they're a very unique band. I don't claim to know everything about Linkin Park or, or Limp Biscuit. I know what I like from those bands. I don't claim to know anything about those bands. <laughs> but, but essentially, I mean, but they, they were, you know, Chester Bennington, who passed away a few years ago, was the, if you, it's almost like a comedy team. You know, Chester was the straight guy, and I, I can't remember um, the, the, the guy who, hit, who did all the hip-hop vocals. He was the the the, uh, the comedian guy. I mean, if you're looking at it in those terms, so you know Chester Bennington for Lincoln Park was the straight guy. He was the metal singer. He was the the hard rock vocalist in Lincoln Park, where Mike Shinoda was the the hip hop singer, the 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 rapper, if you will. And they were you know two different kinds of styles. So they that they were unique in that they blended two vocalists in there. And musically, you know, they had a guy who was on on turntables, and they had a keyboard programming guy, and and so they were they were very different than a lot of other bands. With Limp Biscuit, you know, you have a guy, you know, have DJ Lethal, who is your he's your turntable guy, he's your DJ, and then you have a, a traditional band, you know, with Wes Borland, John Otto, and and Sam Rivers. But then you have Fred Durst, who is a, I mean, he could sing, but he's also the rapper. These two bands pretty much started around the same time. They had some, you know, they had success at the same time, but they were two different styles of bands, even though they were both, you know, new metal. One was more of a traditional, almost, I would say Linkin Park was almost like a a traditional hip-hop-ish kind of dance band where they appealed to a, a, they, they didn't really appeal to the new metal crowd. But Limp Biscuit did to all the what I would I would consider them posers myself. 
you know, to the guys <laughs> who, who weren't really metal, but they like, you know, they like something hard and this band can play hard, but you know, they were rapping at the same time. I don't know. It, it, to me, the people who really adopted Limp Biscuit and Lincoln Park and all these kinds of bands, you know, when I say adopted, they, they, they full bore, they went into it, you know, you know, saggy pants and, and, you know, the graffiti writing, those guys to me weren't real metalheads. Real metalheads wouldn't have done this. I, I, I liked the music, but I did not adopt the style whatsoever. You know, there's I, there's a big you difference. Know, I wasn't a fan. You know, um, you know, they, the, there were a few big songs. Obviously, uh, as a wrestling fan, there was a lot of Limp Bizkit in pay per views for right. the WWE. I mean, that just was part of it. Undertaker had a Limp Bizkit theme song at one point. He had Rollin'. So, I mean, I definitely was aware of it. It just wasn't something I went out of my way to listen to. Right. I didn't go out of my way to listen to it. It kind of came to me because I was, even though I was out of the out of the music business, I still followed stuff. Like, so, you know, if, if I follow Metallica, they were on the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack, which was, you know, had Limp Bizkit on it. And, and that was a really a big song for them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. You know, so, uh, that was a big song for them. So you brought up Metallica. Why don't we uh, address them real quick? Sure. <laughs> so, so you know, basically they released S and M in uh, was it ninety nine? I believe it was at the end of ninety eight. Ninety eight. Okay. Yeah. So they they release a live album, which is pretty dang cool. I mean, a, a, a concept with a uh, a lot a live orchestra playing along with them so you you've got something pretty powerful for not just your standard live album and then i guess not a lot happened and they started to kind of uh fall apart and i'm sure you know more about that than me well but you have jason leaving the band yeah and, jason left uh, in 2001 i mean the the whole thing with Metallica and, and, the, and the turn of the, the millennium, it was unfortunate that they were not in songwriting mode, if you want to put it that way. They weren't in making an album mode. And I think that's... Which happens. Yeah. And that's it, why some of these bands broke up and changed their uh, their formula. Right. Like we, like we talked about with uh, Soundgarden. Right. So it was one of those things that for them and and to and to correct myself S&M did come out at the end of 99 so you're right okay um the thing about Metallica was you know in 98 they did garaging they so they they were in the studio per se when they created you know that you know side 1 or side 1 and 2 or or the first CD and then you know but they weren't making new music so they they go on tour. Remember, it was a, it was a Millennium tour, so they they basically were playing stadiums in the winter, for the most part, wherever they could play. I guess they were playing warmer weather places outdoors. But it was one of these things where there, there really was no reason to tour, even though S and M came out. They did a few indoor shows with with the with the orchestras, but in essence, they didn't do. They did the outdoor tour leading into the new millennium. I mean, I saw them two or three days before the new year at that time, 1999. 
really cool. I mean, they, but here's the funny thing: they had open for them Creed and uh, Seven Dust, I believe it was, and Kid Rock. So you talk about an eclectic opening act. You go from a guy who is rap. You can't even call him rap rock, but he did some rock. Um, and then you got Creed, uh, Seven Dust, which is you know basically heavy metal, and Creed, which is a crossover. You know, you it's a hard rock band. I can't even call them grunge. You yeah, know? they're definitely a hard rock band. I mean, I don't I don't know a better way to describe them. Right. So and now that's what Metallica put into the new year. So when two thousand comes, they're they're on a downturn, and what ends up happening is Jason wants to do a side project called Irate, I-R-8. And James says, no, you can't do it. And so, and then there was another side project that James, Jason wanted to do, and James told him, no, he couldn't do it. And that was the one that, the side project that showed up on, on some, kind some, of kind, some kind of monster. You know, so you have a guy who, who needs to, to release his musical outlet and then you have a guy who's very insecure about if it's not this, you know, he might want to do something else and leave. But that's not that wasn't the case. But eventually, it it, it forced him to make that the case. James's refusal to allow Jason to express himself musically was the ultimate downfall at that time for that band. Now, yeah, you know who knows what would have happened had he stayed in the band who knows what would have happened you know do they do they go through the therapy do they do they break up what what happens who knows but it is what it is now um so yes they had a lot of turmoil going into the new into the new millennium and it was tough it was tough to see i mean it was tough to be a part of as a fan you know you're not getting a lot of information all of a sudden you know james is in rehab and like, oh shit! Now what? Now, now we don't know Jack because back then, as much as the the, the internet was still uh, fresh and new, and you can get a lot of information, there was there still wasn't social media, so you couldn't get this minute to minute update. You had to wait. So that was tough. As a fan, yeah. So Metallica, you know, you, you basically Metallica got cast aside. Come come the new millennium. Yeah, it was it was a while before they they recovered, and and it's hard to even say that that Saint Anger would be that recovery because it it really wasn't. It was it was it was the the medicine that got them to where they needed, but but it was it was a good decade before they were really back to form. For sure, I mean it was it was a while. Well, why don't we mention one of uh, their running buddies in Pantera? And didn't Pantera come to an end? At that time, yeah, too? Yeah, that was another band that uh, came to an end with uh, Reinventing the Steel. They were already showing some pretty severe cracks. Phil wasn't even in the studio when the other guys were recording the album. Uh, they were, he was dealing with a lot of his, his personal problems. Even though it was a decent album, by 2003, they had broken up. Yeah, it's it's weird because, you know, I almost felt as a fan, you know, and I, I wasn't as engaged in the fandom of Pantera as others were, but for someone who would get just get, you know, general information out there, I I thought the band was done uh, when they released the live album. So it was it was one of those weird things where it's like, oh, they got a new album out, 
you know, with Reinventing the Steel. Personally, it's a good album. I, I don't see, you know, so I, I, it's it's almost two extremes. I hear people sit there and say it's a very disjointed album. I don't see that. I don't see it that way. I see it as, it's, it may not be the most um, cohesive, but I don't see it as completely disjointed. To me, the songs are good. Like any other Pantera record, it's got it's got its moments of brilliance, and then other times it's got its moments of what the hell was that, <laughs> you know. But I think every one of their albums has something like that. So this album is no different. Now they didn't have anything that was as good as Walk, or they didn't have anything as good as I'm Broken on it, but they still had some good songs. Um, yeah, they definitely had good songs. The problem was what you were seeing. When you went to see the band, you could see it wasn't the same. Right. You know, there, there was there was things that were that were falling apart there. And did uh, they tour for that that album? They did. And they, the band broke up after the tour. Okay. So, unlike some of the other bands we talked about, they did actually promote the album. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that only because I, again, I was I was not as much as I like Pantera. I wasn't really into them and and following them and and all that stuff. It was a very strange relationship. <laughs> gotcha. All right, so uh, why don't we uh, talk about Megadeth? I mean, they they had a pretty big hiccup there with Risk. Yeah, I'm not a fan. You know, we, we're talking about all these these downers. You know, bands falling apart basically and i don't know i don't necessarily think it's falling apart but really trying to find their feet in this time period you know they're not sure where they belong i guess with megadeth this has always been my criticism of dave as much as dave is is brilliant guitar player brilliant lyricist brilliant songwriter one of the problems that i've always had with dave and this is the way i feel i could be wrong he went into the same syndrome as kiss he became a follower and he was always a step behind, much like a decade earlier, they came out with Rust in Peace, which was a brilliant album, okay? And then the next year, Metallica comes out with the Black Album, and he's like, oh, I got to do an album like that. And he comes in with a slower album, still a metal album like Metallica's, but definitely more accessible. And with each progressing album going into the 90s because of grunge, each one becomes more and more accessible literally all the way up to risk and risk was the ultimate i'm going to try and be as commercial as possible well and, i mean he was taking the advice of lars <laughs> well so, but, i mean there's but, yeah you know you could take the advice of lars as much as you want but there's 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 a certain way no matter what metallica did Okay, I mean, they only put out two albums of new music, or three albums of new music in the 90s. One was a metal album, you know, for, for lack of a better term, because the Black Album is, is a heavy metal album. But Load and Reload, they're more hard rock grunge, Alice in Chains-ish. And Dave, you know, you could listen, he could listen to Lars all he wants, but man, he went... He just jumped off the bridge and said, "I'm going for it," you know. And it's like, <laughs> well, hence the name Risk. But I gotta say, you you go a few years later, and it's a huge turnaround with "World Needs a Hero." That's an awesome album. I love that album. That album, he found his feet again, and in that one, to me, is very is borderline the album that should have either come out after Countdown 
or the album that should have come out after, I guess, Euthanasia. Because it was it was along those lines, relatively commercial. Motorcycle is a relatively commercial song, but it's still metal. But Return to Hanger, very good song, adopting again a similar a similar concept that Metallica did by using the same chord structure to recreate a new song. Metallica did it with Unforgiven, Unforgiven two and three, and and they will again for Unfor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna punch never, you so hard if their next album has Unforgiven on it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I want royalties on that one because I don't know the name. But yeah, so <laughs> so you know, Megadeth goes in and does the same type of thing. They said you know they recreate a song based on the same chord structure, and you know they have Return to Hanger, still a good song. Now there's other songs on the album that are very good. It, it, it's hard to name them off the top of my head, but it's a good, it's a solid album. It's a metal album. It's a return to form, for that matter. While Dystopia is is a return to form, if you're going to look at Megadeth from the point of view of Rust and Peace, The World Needs a Hero is a return to form for the Countdown to Extinction era, if you want to put it that way. That's the way I feel about it. Well, one thing is, is Dave, you clearly see that he needed... To, to have the same kind of musical outlet that we talked about with, with uh, Jason, that we talked about with uh, you know the guys from Rage Against the Machine, where they just needed to do something a little different. And he had planned System Has Failed as a solo album. But due to his contract, he had to release it as a Megadeth album. But wasn't, was, wasn't that supposed to be um, <clears throat> a solo album because he had broken up Megadeth because of his arm injury? There's, I mean, there's a few factors there, and obviously there was the lawsuit with David Ellison that followed. Yeah, he he wanted to do something a little different, and you know, luckily we've still got him around. You know, bringing out great music like you brought up uh, Dystopia. But again, this is another case of kind of fatigue from one of these great bands and needing to do something different. Right, it's one of those things where. When you have a guy like that, that's the leader of the band, let's put it this way, you either need, if you're going to, if you need an outlet, you either need to go completely in the opposite direction or don't do it at all. A perfect example of that is Sully Erna from Godsmack. He is Godsmack for the most part. He's the song, he's the lyricist. Him and the band write songs together. Tommy um, Rumble, I think, is the bass player, is the guitar player's name. That dude, he can write a riff. So can Sully. But Sully is the main guy. He's the driving force behind that band. He made a solo album, which was a completely opposite direction. You know, there was a lot of somber music. It was a lot of piano. It was more ballady than anything. But it wasn't heavy in the least. If Dave decides, I want to make a solo album, you can't go and make a metal album and expect it to be not Megadeth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but but there's varying degrees of that. I mean, a lot of times when uh, an artist wants to make a solo album, the record label doesn't have the confidence behind it when it's when it's not something similar to to what they're doing. So they oftentimes don't want to put it out. That's why you see things like Black Sabbath releasing Seventh Star under Black Sabbath rather than a, a Tony Iommi solo band. Again, this was this was a situation where 
Dave wanted to re- to release a solo album, but they were basically telling him, no, you got to release a uh, Megadeth album. You're signed to our label. You're going to do what we want. And that was the same thing that happened with Death, where uh, Chuck wrote the last album, Sound of Perseverance, as a Control Denied album, which we'll talk about that band later. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the, the studio said, no, you, you have to release another Death album. So he re- reworked the album, which is amazing, into a Death album. I hate record companies. <laughs> yeah. I mean, realistically... We, we talked about this when we were talking about the albums that turned 20 or 30. The record companies wanted the next grunge band. Oh, so let's turn this band that it made that had success as a pop metal band, let's turn them into a grunge band. And that's where record companies fail. That's where record companies, as smart as they may be, are as dumb as a broken brick. Forget a, a, a pile of bricks. It is ridiculous to try and change somebody. Now, you know, you could tweak a thing here or there. But when you're trying to completely change this band, or any band, that's where things go wrong. Uh, You know, I get Warner Brothers not wanting to release Tony's solo album as Tony. You know, they're worried about record sales. Tony is worried about getting to express himself musically. He doesn't Mm -hmm. give a crap about record sales. Dave Mustaine probably didn't give a crap about record sales. I don't care if it sells or not. It's not Megadeth. This is not Megadeth. This is not Black Sabbath. This is not Death. You know, all these yeah. these things are not that. So you're not going to get the same sales as if it were that. So you sh- they shouldn't, you know, but those people think they know better. Well, now they force something down someone's throat. What happens? You don't get, you don't get shit either way. Sometimes you get magic and you get things changed, but a lot of times you don't you don't get anything either way. You you kind of screw yourself in in the foot at that point. Well, that's that's kind of the the gist. And I've talked about a few of my friends with, or talked about this with a few of my friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that there is this corporate culture that comes into a lot of these products and is ruining what we love. You know, like the the Disney powerhouse. Has, has bought all these major products like Star Wars and Marvel, and they're, they're influencing the, the writers and telling them what they need to do. Or they're hiring people that aren't necessarily involved in that industry, and they're, they're social media influencers, etc. And so you're getting a lot of this aspect of, of these properties that have been around for years and years and been very successful. They're starting to be destroyed from the inside because now they're owned by these these mega corporations and the same thing happens with what what you're talking about with with uh the bands and like what what i mentioned with with dave and and you know some of these other bands is that the the corporate culture if the artist is not strong enough to say no this is what i'm gonna do deal with it a lot of times these products that get put out are just garbage (laughs) Exactly. You know, there's very few artists in this world that have complete control. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Metallica was one of them. Motley Crue is one of them. Oddly enough. But I think Motley Crue, they got control of their stuff later on. Metallica has been in control since day one 
I mean, as as much as it seems like maybe, maybe not, Metallica has been in control of everything since day one. Like bands like the Beatles had the, had the ability to control pretty much everything they did because they had enough sway on the public. They had enough record sales that they could justify saying no to the label. And luckily, they've had that status. Yeah, but, you know, other bands even as big as they are, have not necessarily been as fortunate. I mean, look at Boston. Boston was huge, you know, at the time, you know, number one selling album, uh, a debut album of all time at that point. And, you know, they, they back it up with another big album with Don't Look Back. But then they get into a disagreement with the record company and they basically were lost for years until Third Stage came out. You know. That had some something to do with Tom Schulz, though, because Tom was such a perfectionist. He, I mean, he sat on things for so long without, and also not giving anybody else a lot of creative control in the writing process. That was part so, of it, but then it became then it became uh, a record company issue. Yeah, I mean, there, there's that's what I said. It's a, it's a, it part of it, right? That was part of it. You know, Led Zeppelin had complete control from beginning to end. From day one, between Jimmy Page and, and Peter Grant, the manager, they were in complete control from day one. So it's very, very few bands have that ability. I mean, as big as Black Sabbath was, they obviously did not have that influence on Warner Brothers. And it's sad because, like, you know, look at Van Halen having such a, such a problem at one point to get remasters out because their album sounded like shit. Yeah. So, getting back to the main topic, these bands, you know, like Megadeth, they all suffered from trying to be something that they weren't, I guess you could say. Yeah. And Whereas... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go on. I'm sorry. I was going to say, like, the, a lot of bands, you know, were, were having to, to fit into this mold um, where, you know, in the 90s, other bands did the same thing and now we're kind of returning to form yeah a few examples of that would be iron maiden judas mm. priest and uh creator right we're going to combine iron maiden and judas priest sort of together in this particular case even though that the reunions happened at separate times but they still followed the same kind of general right story. And, the, and the reason why i say i put it this way, i put it that way is because iron maiden Bruce Dickinson left in 1993, uh, was away for six years, came back and, and reunited with Iron Maiden in 1999. It was a, it was an obvious as daylight thing that you know, Rod Smallwood and Steve Harris realized that that they needed to do to make a change. It, it wasn't going to work with Blaze Bailey for one reason or another. As much as as there were very good songs on the X Factor and Virtual Eleven, there was something missing. Obviously, and something. The other thing too is that there's a, a conspiracy theory that Nico did not play drums on Virtual Eleven. And if you listen to Virtual Eleven and you see some of the playing, you can tell Nico wasn't into it. So that I would almost say, yeah. I mean, the drumming on Virtual Eleven is completely different than anything Nico had done. But regardless of that, in 1999. They bring back Bruce and Adrian, and they release Brave New World in 2000. 
The other thing that happened in 99 was the, if you will, rebirth of the metal god, Rob Halford. He found himself. I don't know where he was at. I don't know what desert he was walking through by himself. But he realized that he was who he is. And that was the metal god, Rob Halford. And puts- well, well, I think what happened was he did fight. Right. And fight was the, the you know, the the viciousness that he wanted to put out. He wanted to do something heavier, darker, but not necessarily like the Dungeons and Dragons kind of thing that they were doing in, in Judas Priest before, you know. And then he go, he does the project, too. And that was great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was an outlet. Okay, but you it know, was. And but I like think, I think, like saying anger it was necessary, but not good. It was necessary for him personally. But again, the same thing I said before: if you're gonna go and do a solo album, you might as well go in the opposite direction. Okay, oh, he did. Uh, yeah, he did. I mean, he wanted to do an industrial album. Okay, but you know, rumor has it there's a version out there, and I think John Five has mentioned it that is very heavy, and that when they remixed it in the studio. That's where it kind of went sideways. Fine, whatever. Who cares? Two was a necessary project for him to get out, get off his chest. Okay? And you can hear it in the song Resurrection. He mentions everything that happened from the from the time that he was born all the way up to that point. And I love that song. It is one of the greatest storytelling songs you'll ever hear. Yeah. And it's an excellent song. That's that that's the even better part about it. It is a great song you know yeah it's it's a really great album as a whole oh yeah it's, it's a great it's, album as a whole but that song is freaking amazing so 2000 essentially iron maiden releases brave new world rob halford releases resurrection coincidentally enough the singer for iron maiden bruce dickinson makes a guest appearance on the, the halford one album the one that's an uh, awesome song that is an awesome song uh, the one you love to hate. And I love the way they do the duet. That's killer. <clears throat> That's why those two bands are, are forever linked. Going all the way back to 1980 through most of their career. They've always been linked together. Even though Judas Priest is much older. So, well, then 2003 rolls around and hmm. the Ripper uh, Owens era of Judas Priest ends. And you have Rob rejoining much in the same way that Bruce rejoined. Iron Maiden. They put out a new album, Angel of Retribution, and it's very much the return to form to what they were doing before when Rob left the band with Jug, or not with Jugulator, with Painkiller. Right. You know, Jug- Jugulator, obviously, being the uh, the uh, raw, uh, the uh, the Ripper album. Ripper album. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I mean those two parallel, even though it's a few years difference. There's a huge parallel. And I, and I think that a lot of that has to do with probably the, the friendship that those two have, Bruce and, and Rob. And and especially with Rob seeing the success that Iron Maiden had with the reunion, he's thinking to himself, man, you know, I could have this too. But, you know, he, he had some success with Halford. I mean, he played some probably some pretty decent-sized shows in Japan, but he wasn't the same act as he was, you know. So, yeah. And I don't think Judas Priest ever attained the level that they had in the 90s or excuse me in the 80s as as the way that iron maiden did when they when they got back together but 
they still had a good amount of success. You know, but I think what what may have derailed them and put them in a situation was when they came out with Nostradamus. But that's that's a, that's a, a conversation for another time. Yeah, I mean, they they certainly kind of came back to form with the uh, the new albums with uh, Richie. Yes. So, well, another another band that had a really similar story was Creator. I mean, Creator didn't break up with the lead singer, but they definitely went into a different path. You know, they they uh, they they changed the direction that they were going. Um, so they put they put out a few albums. There's like four albums right there in the middle of their career that where they they went into kind of doom metal, some alternative stuff, and it and it really went far away from the original thrash element of their band and then they put out violent revolution right around the the, the time of the millennium and it's definitely a return to form it's my favorite creator album and it's it picks up right where they left off with coma of souls and that's that's all you could could ask for when you get a band like you know a band like that goes in another direction like that you hope that they come back and you hope that they come back just as strong as they left or even stronger Mm-hmm. And I'm not as familiar with creators you are, so I don't want to step on saying the wrong thing or, or giving out misinformation. It's good to hear that a band, and especially if you know when you when when they re, when they not reunite, but when they regroup and they find themselves again and they put out an album that you can consider one of the best of their career, you know. And in your case, it's your favorite. That is that is something that that's really cool with a band. Well, yeah, part of it was, was replacing the guitarist at the time. And what, what ended up happening was that the band stayed consistent for the next almost 20 years. I mean, at that point, they, I mean, Sammy, I, I, I'm not even going to hazard a guess on how to say his last name. But he replaces <laughs> Tommy, he replaces Tommy Vetterly. I believe is his last name. Um, and so for the next 18 years, they they stayed a consistent band and they, they built a very strong sound while still experimenting, but still maintaining that original thrash sound. And the only change just happened recently, I believe it was this year. So the, the, that's always a good sign is when, when the band reforms they're even stronger than they were, just like Iron Maiden. They haven't made any changes since since they reformed. Right. You know, there's a whole host of stories that are like that, where you know it's a, a resurrection. The same in, in that idea with that Halford had that you find yourself again and you find yourself being accepted. And that's the thing. I th- I think the point of this whole episode is you you realize with the new millennium what was once old is new again what once existed is is basically you know being rehashed again and 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 not rehashed in in a bad way where it's like oh this again it's coming in stronger than ever metal came in in the 2000s and they were riding the coattails of new metal but the but bands that had been there that were able to survive through the 90s now realize that they, they it's almost like they had new breath of life get into them and say hey we can do this and iron maiden did it judas priest did it creator did it 
in looking down the list of, of bands that I have here, I see, you know, Armored Saint never was a huge band, but they released an album, Revelation, very strong album in 2000. It just on and on with different bands, you know, just going through Black Label Society, continued their strong growth into the, into the new millennium. I believe Stronger Than Death was their second album, I think it was. So they had some good, a lot of momentum for these bands, you know, and people that may or may not have lost their way. You know, Zach, for Ozzy, you know, Ozzy had all his, you know, different things going on, and he's always been with different guitar players because, you know, he gets too accustomed to one or he or he wants to write with somebody else or whatever it is, but he always get, he always went back to Zach, just like now. He's he's one of those guys that continues to survive. But along those same lines, like I said before, there's new blood, there's new life, there's all sorts of stuff. And the the new era brought in a whole bunch of new bands that would, to this day, are still making good music and good albums. One that I want to touch on, because you said something that, that made me think of them, mm-hmm. was um, you said, what is old is new again, was Fozzy. Because Fozzie actually started by just playing old 80s songs. And they had a few, on on each album they peppered in uh, a couple original songs, which uh, they kind of fit with everything else that was on the album. But you could also see, like, wow, you know, Chris Jericho can sing, one, and uh, Stuck Mojo can play. Because it was it was the guys from Stuck Mojo that that were in the first incarnation of the band, and Rich Ward still plays, you know, in in Fozzie. But what made me think of that was you said, well, what is old is new again? You know, they you, they took a, the concept of playing these old eighty songs and now have really developed into something strong. I mean, they've got some really great albums. The the newest one, Judas, was was really good. Yeah, it was very good. A lot of these bands. If you want to look at the, some of the bands that started in 2000, I, I, I was looking at Fozzie. Fozzie started, they released their first album, and they have grown exponentially. Okay. Mm-hmm. And here's the funny thing about Fozzie when you mentioned you know, Chris Jericho being a good singer. When, he, when you first heard Fozzie and you hear Chris Jericho sing, you can hear Chris Jericho, the wrestler, whining one of his rants, one of his promos that he does in wrestling. But as they progressed, he got away from that Chris Jericho voice, and he became a singer. Yeah. And, and his singing voice was found. And that that's the one thing that's cool. Like, right now, like, you hear Judas, and, and that's not the same singer that, that did the first song on Fozzie. No, you not know? for sure. He's he's definitely improved quite he's, a bit. You know, he's definitely got his, his, his style. Bands that started in the late 90s, you know, you could look at bands like System of a Down. Technically, they're still around, um, but they haven't played in quite a, a long time. They were supposed to play, but they've played a show on and off here and there for the last few years. For the most part, they ended in the early, in the mid to late 2000s. They ended their recording career. Um, Disturbed is still around. Slipknot is still around. These these bands, I mean, Slipknot just released a very good album uh, last year, in 2019. So essentially 20 years later, they released another album, and it was very good. Maybe not as good as the first Slipknot album, maybe not as good as Volume 3, but some good songs on it. 
Mm-hmm. They're still thriving. Yeah. Disturbed have evolved dramatically since their first album came out in 2000. They've been around for 20 years. Even though this year they were supposed they were supposed to do a 20th anniversary uh, of the Sickness tour, you know they they evolved to the point where you like them more now than you did back then. Yeah, I mean, I, I like their their more modern stuff that they've been putting out. I like the kind of storytelling element of the of the music that they're doing now. But obviously, I mean, they were huge that that first release. I mean, it appeared on Queen of the Damned, Green Street. Dawn of the Dead, that remake from from that time. They were in South Park, Dragon Ball Z, WWE. I mean, they they they'd done a they, they did a song for uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I mean, they were huge when they started, and they're I, I think they're probably even bigger now. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean their style has changed a, a little bit. You know, they're not doing this same the same staccato style of of singing or guitar playing. But, you know, I mean, it's mixed in, but yeah, he's he's evolved more as a singer, where he's he's doing a lot more styles. Right, exactly, and you know, he's a great singer. I mean, he's got an incredible voice. It's completely on display, you know, in the Sound of Silence. So bands like that have have continued to thrive from the new millennium into now. And one thing I know you wanted to mention, you know, some of these newer bands that are coming out in the new millennium. There's a lot of bands on this list that I'm looking at the albums, and I don't know if they're the first albums, second albums, or third albums. I can't because I'm not as familiar with them. But one thing I did notice is melodic death metal is huge, or, or, or it's either huge or, or it's building up, and it, it just explodes in the 2000s. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, bands like In Flames, Children of Bottom, they put out, and I'm going to tie Tool into this in a weird way because it's not melodic death metal by any means. No. So let me let me make sure that's clear. But I'm going to tie them into this in a weird way. In Flames and Children of Bottom put out Followed Reaper and uh, Clayman, respectively. And those albums were, at the time, like the maturity, that was, that was beyond the level that they had been putting music out. That was the most mature releases before they kind of changed styles, both of them. The bottom kept kind of a consistent style throughout their career, um, but there were there were certain elements that they lost along the way because they just grew as musicians or they just changed things up because they wanted to stay fresh. Whereas In Flames completely detoured. I mean, they they have an album that that they released the the next year called uh, Reroute to Remain, which is exactly that. They changed directions so that they could stay relevant. But yeah, melodic death metal took off during this time. And a lot of the bands, like I said, were reaching a high point in maturity. And that's why I was mentioning Tool, because they did the same thing with Lateralis, where it was it was the height of their maturity in writing songs. And I, I kind of saw that as a trend with a lot of bands that had been around for around the same amount of time. If they had been around from, from the early 90s to this point, was kind of like what was happening with bands the decade before, where they're they're now a decade in to their writing process, mm-hmm. and they're reaching that point of musical maturity. And usually, when that happens, one one of two things happens: the albums that they release going forward just aren't as strong because they've reached that point, that pinnacle of their career, 
or they do something that keeps them fresh and relevant but new and unfortunately in some of those instances the band either dropped off like tool didn't release anything for a long time but the, back to the the melodic death metal like i said in flames completely changed bottom changed a lot of these bands that were kind of emulating them were following up like uh soil work chain heart machine was probably the last album that was of the same vein as the, the first few albums that they started on. And then they, too, in the next couple of years, would change their style and become more of a, I guess, progressive in the, in the way they, they recorded songs. So you saw right at the millennium, there was this level of maturity that, unfortunately, to some, to, to that, that fan base, led to a huge change in the genre yeah i mean it's adapt or be left behind which was the grunge thing that happened in you know in 90 but i think people were their own worst enemy when it came to that in in the new millennium because as much as grunge was popular in europe it was very different obviously melodic death metal was huge or is still huge out there and yeah. the bands like you know bottom and and in flames and it's weird i don't think in flames had to change i mean for them it just i guess it was a matter of you know we felt they felt that they got to the point where that you know they couldn't mature anymore in this particular style of music whereas you see a band as young you know a young amana marth you know, is coming out in, in 99 going into the new millennium and they just continue to progress and progress and progress and get better and better at their songwriting. Yeah. So there was a lot of good bands that came in in the new millennium that you could see that are still around today that are, like we mentioned, with Fozzie, with uh, Amon Marth being young. I don't know uh, at what point Arch Enemy started, but they're, you know, they, they released an album in 99 and they're still around today. But they changed things up as well. I mean, they they felt like they weren't they weren't uh, growing at the rate that they wanted to, so they actually forced the singer out of the band and brought on Angela Gasso, which was which was a completely different change because it was a female vocal in in a in a death metal band, which was pretty novel at the time. Right. You know, now it's a you know standard fare. It's more common, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it was one of those things where I think. A lot of people changed because they felt they needed to change when they really didn't. And some people changed because that was just the necessary thing. It, it's really weird. I mean, that, it's, it's just it's kind of almost an, an everyday thing, but it was so prevalent in 2000. You know, yeah, where, I mean, one of my favorite bands ended right around that time, which is one I've mentioned a million times, Death. Chuck decided that it was time to make some some pretty big changes and he he did a project called control denied they only released the one album because unfortunately uh he he died of brain cancer not long after but the fragile art of existence carried over a lot of those jazzy elements the 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 things that he was doing but wasn't as heavy and had clean vocals and so it was a new project a new evolution but you could still feel the progression I mean, it wasn't like it was such a departure from what he was doing with death. It was in the aspects that I mentioned, but you could still tell it was Chuck's writing. It was it was a lot of those those 
musical strengths that he had. Right. So just to kind of really, I want to go over some real quick here and, and, and kind of show something here. I got a ticket to go to OzFest 99. And in 99, this was these were the main acts. Black Sabbath, Rob Zombie, The Deftones, Slayer, Primus, System of a Down, and Godsmack. Both System of a Down and Godsmack, well, System of a Down specifically, went from the second stage to the main stage in one year. So that shows you where they were. Godsmack was that was the opening of the of the of the main stage and a year later you know in 2000 they were on the they were third in line behind or second behind ozzy so well say third you know it was ozzy pantera godsmack my my point being is you got bands like godsmack system of a down primus fear factory slipknot all these static x all these bands that came in into the late 90s and had a, a good run of success into the 90s, into the new millennium, and had a, I guess you could owe it, to, they, they all owe it to Ozzy to some degree, but it, it shows you what kind of openness Ozzy had to these, these bands and knowing that this was the new era of bands. You know, some of the, you know, obviously to get people, to draw people in, they needed the Rob Zombies and the Slayers. And later on, the Panteras or the Motorheads or the Megadeths, because Megadeth played them for a while. But you could see that there was a shift, and a lot of new bands became really big because of these this kind of exposure. You know, Disturbed. Yeah, was I on mean, it. In, in a way, they they were made by the, the the previous generation, and nobody's ever said Sharon wasn't a, a shrewd business person. No, so just a just a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> but but she definitely recognized that if they were going to continue to maintain their popularity, um, they needed to recognize that this new generation needed to be kind of interwoven into the old generation, and that way they were still relevant. If you see Ozzy playing with Godsmack, if you see Ozzy playing not physically playing right yeah the band same you know same bill same same bill if you see ozzy playing with all these these modern bands that you the young kids are picking up and seeing then they're still relevant so exactly it was genius to 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 book all these guys on the same bill yeah it's uh, it's I, i know it was a big jump in talking about some you know but europe europe had they were still big on metal melodic death metal and that was taking off the festivals that that we enjoy now were beginning to really take off at that time and there was you know Donington in England was a big festival but you know Vakken began to take off you know uh not necessarily saying that year but it, you know something that emerged in the year all these big european festivals where all these bands that are in europe uh, began to just become more and more prevalent they're huge out there you know ozzy's ozfest was the american version of that and it was a little touring version of it those bands that we mentioned mostly contained themselves to the united states they weren't you know necessarily huge everywhere you know much like a lot of those bands maintained themselves in europe 
So, it, but it shows where you know the the fan was able to enjoy everything. They they were able to get all of it and see all of it and hear all of it, and it was a great time for for the fan of metal at that time. Oh yeah, for sure. So basically, the the turn of the millennium was huge for metal. You know, we're still seeing changes. We're still seeing the the growth. I mean, there's a there's de- this huge uh, resurgence of of death metal. Things that that be, that started in the '80s are becoming huge now. It's it'll be really interesting to see. Obviously, we're not going to make it to the next millennium, um, but it'll be interesting to see as the decades progress each evolution of this music we love. Exactly. I mean. And we started a new decade this year, and you got totally screwed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my plan to go to to uh, a concert every month kind of got derailed. Yeah, and I was with you on those shows, and yeah, it went sideways. We'll have to do that in twenty twenty one, hopefully. Let's hope. Let's hope. All right. So, like I said at the top of the show, we're going to be presenting our big four Mount Rushmore. These are our guys that we feel are the the most important in metal to us it doesn't mean it's the same for you but we definitely want to hear what you think your big four is so why don't you start it off with yours all right so let me ask you a question in this mount rushmore is, is this something where like it could include two vocalists and and one bass player and no drummers or is this something yeah, you're, not, you're not building a band you're okay picking... <laughs> now but that being said Pick okay. all bass players if you really want to. <laughs> all right, but that being pipe. said, I did try to do it in a terms of most influential to some degree, okay. but at the same time, someone that I think was very meaningful, and I did go the way of doing it for each different musical category. Okay. Okay. So let me preface this up. This, this Mount Rushmore that we're doing... Uh, I, I want to apologize to Eddie Trunk. It is not a ripoff of what you're trying, what you do from time to time. He has his own Mount Rushmore stuff, um, but we're just trying to do this. You know, it, it obviously Mount Rushmore is a very special thing in the hearts of of, of Americans. Having these it's four, a, it's an iconic image. Right, it's an iconic yeah. an iconic image of four very influential presidents. So. When it comes to something like this, Mount Rushmore is revered. It is an honor to be placed up there. It's not something that I would take lightly when I choose someone. I went with a vocalist, a guitar player, a bass player, and a drummer. Drummer, to me, was the hardest one because I was looking at it in the, in the aspect of metal, not in the aspect of hard rock, uh, alternative, progressive, or anything like that. Okay. So uh, that was the hardest one for me. So um, my big four, Mount Rushmore, people that I would love to see on on a granite mountain, Rob Halford. Uh, to me, in metal, there is no more influential vocalist than Rob Halford. Bruce Dickinson is great. Ronnie James Dio is great. Other singers are great. But in terms of, I mean, there's a reason why he's called the metal god. I don't think it's just something he woke up when they say, hey, I'm the metal god. It was best- <laughs> it was bestowed upon him. But damn it, he ran he run away with it. <laughs> okay? Oh, yeah, he did. Number two. 
you know, and this is no no particular order because it's four guys. Number two, Tony Iommi, guitar player, Black Sabbath. I mean, there is everyone hands down owes Tony Iommi a a bow, a kneel down, a, a we're not worthy when it comes to guitar playing and heavy metal and a down tune riff. Okay, you know, for 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 all the people that James Hetfield has influenced, his biggest influence is Tony. For all the people that Scott Ian has influenced, his biggest influence is Tony. Although he'll he'll tell you Malcolm Young. <laughs> when it comes to metal, all these guitar players all the way down the line, you know, whoever whoever is the latest guitar player now has a guitar player that influenced him. That guy was influenced by Tony Iommi. <clears throat> Number three, bass player. The one, the only, the boss, Steve Harris. I don't think there's anyone in metal with a more distinctive bass sound than Steve Harris. That's my opinion. There are bass players where you can hear their recording, you can hear their fingers, you can hear them picking or whatever it is. But as far as a distinctive style, he, to me, is the, the most influential bass player in metal, in my opinion. Now, here's where things kind of go a little sideways for me drummers it was very hard to pick a drummer um metal wise because the i think the metal community can sit there and say that this one particular person influenced them a lot but this particular person that i'm gonna mention is probably not the most vocalized influential person but i think he he's he's in there in a lot of people's top five and many people don't even realize it. I choose Tommy Aldrich because he's okay. been around. He's been around forever. I mean, if he's not as 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 old as everybody else, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he he he's up there. <clears throat> I mean, he's been playing since the early seventies. Even though that's not him on that double bass intro for "Over the Mountain," you, when you listen to it in concert, you know you've heard his his version being played most of the time amazing drummer he played with ozzy he played with uh white snake those are the two biggest bands he's played with i you know and he is an incredibly good drummer and still can do it in top notch to this day and i i mean the guy's like 100 years old or at least he looks it and he's in great shape probably just as good a shape as he as he was in the 70s he is right now amazing and he's still got the same head of hair. That's that's amazing. So that's my my uh, Mount Rushmore. I think those are some good choices. I have a little bit of overlap with you, as we usually have have happened. So I went kind of in a, a um, like person to person run down through Mount Rushmore. So I went by Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Lincoln, and kind of thought about like how these guys related to them in a way. So the first one I got, which is my, my Washington was Tony Iommi. I mean, he's, he's the originator. He's the riff master. He's, he's just like the first president. I mean, he's, he's the first president of, uh, of metal. So he's, he's my number one. Um, Jefferson, I picked Rob Halford. Rob Halford is the guy who wrote the the doctrine of metal. 
he was bestowed the the name of the metal god he he took it ran with it he created that that image of what you think of when when somebody says metal he is the metal god and just like jefferson wrote the uh, declaration of independence he wrote the declaration of metal <laughs> i like that my roosevelt is uh bruce dickinson he's the guy that you know he flies a plane I mean, he, he probably does surgery on the side. You, know, <laughs> you, you never know. Um, He's that guy, good. He, he just, he, he waves the banner of metal as much or more than Rob Halford. I mean, he, he is such an innovator, a just, just a crazy experience to see this guy uh, that's his age putting on more of a show than young singers that you see. I mean, it, just incredible. And, you know, Roosevelt was always kind of known for his antics. That's the way I feel about Bruce. I mean, he, he was he's the guy that never stops. Right. All right. So who freed the metal slaves? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to pick somebody that has influenced the current generation starting back in the 80s. And I think you know who I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick Chuck, Chuck Schuldiner. And that's because now the the standard of metal, if you listen to all the new bands that are coming out, the sound of metal, even if it's the what's what's the one you like, the the uh, shadow falls or shadows, shadows fall, fall uh -huh. uh, you know, bands like that where they're they're playing. What do you call it? What's the genre that's popular? now? Metalcore. Metalcore. Even metalcore came from death metal, the 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 originator of that genre. And that's that's the standard of what metal is now yeah he created so, the vocal styling he created mm -hmm. yeah so yeah so he to me i mean and he's been such a such a, a huge part of my metal evolution and he he opened the ears to a, a new gen, new genre that's why he's number four he's sitting in the lincoln slot there you go i i, I like it I, I totally agree with how you went about it I, I struggled a little bit with mine, but I think, you know, we had some overlap and I don't think any, neither one of us are wrong in any in any way, shape or form. Yeah. And I, I like both sets of choices. I mean, I, the, the part the point of this thing is who's your big four? Who's who is the 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 group of four people that you think fits in this slot? And that's why we always say if you don't agree with us, you know, feel free to rip us a new one. Feel free to, to tell us your opinions. We want to hear that. Exactly. So with that, that's the end of Debating Metal. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your metal podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, just like I said a minute ago, let us know what you think. If you agreed with our opinions, rip us a new one. Tear us apart. Tell us what you think. We want to see it on Instagram. We want to see your opinions on Facebook. Let us know. You can reach us at debatingmetal at gmail.com. On behalf of Kenneth Dean, I'm Chris Kay. We'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>